You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Alvin Roth, uh, thank you for coming on the Big Trade series. Um, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Okay, I'm Al Roth. I teach economics at Stanford, and I work in market design. And I recently wrote a book about that called Who Gets What and Why? The New Economics of Matchmaking and Market Design. Thanks for taking the time to uh, speak to us uh, today. So on the subject of um, who gets what, I was actually thinking about um, commodity markets. And um, basically, I I run uh, hedge funds and, you know, am involved with public equities quite a bit. And it was interesting. What I noticed was that we classify like um, stock markets and, and public equities as a commodity market. And um, what's interesting, though, is at the end of the day is one gets to own the underlining piece of a particular company. And um, I noticed that we you discuss a lot about like matchmaking. Do you think that there's some component of like light matchmaking in terms of being able to qualify as, say, for example, an accredited investor to open a stock brokerage account for you to get service from a tier one brokerage firm in order to participate in the stock market? Well, so let's talk a little bit about what what commodities are and what matchmaking is. Yeah. I guess the standard shares in a company are commodities because you don't care which shares you buy. They're yeah. all identical. And so when you're buying shares from someone, unless, of course, you're buying in such large volume that you might move the market, you normally don't care from whom you're buying because you, it doesn't matter which shares you're buying. Mm-hmm. But as you say, investors may not be commodities. Invest- you may care who your investors are, how long-term they are, how... Uh, how resilient they are. Right. So, uh, so there's an element, even there, as you point out, of, of a market in which you care with whom you're matched, and that makes it a matching market. Right. And, and I've noticed that if, say, for example, you take a large um, equity stake in a particular company, then you know, there are certain instances in which you could be allocated something like a board seat. Um, as you've seen, there's activist investors that can play a big role depending on the magnitude and volume of, of the purchase. And sometimes it doesn't even happen on public equities. It could be through the form of a private placement, which also makes the whole perception of the commodity perhaps like less significant to some extent is if you're feeling as if you're purchasing or acquiring a real piece of a company just perceptionally i I don't know if you have any interesting insight on that as well well i think that you're correct that when we're talking about control of a company it's not a commodity market at all you you care who your big investors are and what direction they might want to take the company so uh, so there's quite a bit of matchmaking there there's right. uh, the, whole, the whole mergers and acquisition business is a matchmaking market rather than a commodity market yeah and what are your thoughts on in terms of the the daily like um, market making process within the stock market i i know you you discuss about how for example the nyse helps um uh price discovery which is one component but what about the component of matchmaking 
between market makers and the role that they play in the stock market, which is basically um, you know uh, bids and offers that are happening, and uh, market makers are providing the liquidity for that. So, isn't there some matchmaking involved uh, from that perspective as well? Well, there certainly is, and and as I I write about at some length in the book, this comes up uh, when we think about high speed trading. Yes, since the matching between buyers and sellers the starts to be a function of speed and not just of price so eric budish and his colleagues at the university of chicago have been studying what's the effect of the very high speed lines that connect the new york stock exchange and the chicago mercantile exchange for example and right now the the round trip information for prices on one and another is is down under nine milliseconds now it takes you several hundred milliseconds to blink your eyes. So we're talking about inhuman speeds. And one of the things they notice is that if people can snipe your stale bids and asks um, when when they see a change in one market before you have a chance to change your bids and asks, in self-defense, that forces you to uh, give wider bids and asks, more of a spread and maybe less depth. So so it interferes in some sense with the functioning of the market and what they observe is that this it might be possible to replace this competition by speed to to reinstall competition by price their suggestion of one way to do that is to every second have a call market right so instead of having trade millisecond by millisecond mm-hmm. uh, to to aggregate all the all the trades that come in in a whole second and then Cross supply and demand, and that would allow competition by price to to determine what was going on. Another suggestion in the same vein by uh, Josh Molner and his colleagues here at Stanford um, is you might privilege certain kinds of uh, transactions over others. For instance, you might allow uh, bids and asks being canceled, you know, offers being canceled mm-hmm. to go a little bit faster than offers being executed, and that would allow. Uh, people to still quote narrow bids and asks with the idea that when the market moved, they would have time to to change their bids and asks before, before they could be snapped up in one market and have people buy from them in one market and sell to them in the other market. Right. I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at many different kind of like public equity markets around the world. Um, as you know, uh, the American public equity markets are very sophisticated, but also um, relatively um, lax in terms of the the capital control uh, implementations or, you know, in, in terms of uh, what one can do as, say, for example, a foreign investor or even just a domestic investor in the public markets. A, a great case is I spent a lot of time in Asia and, um, you know, there are very, like in China, there's class A, class B shares in places like Vietnam, where I spent a lot of time in as well. There's a limitations to the magnitude of what foreigners can own in terms of um, a particular investment or primarily like even in public and private equity investments. Do, do you have any uh, thoughts and perspectives on countries that try to implement uh, various different uh, restrictions uh, in terms of markets? And, and what are the long-term implications, in your opinion, when you implement those kind of restrictions? So I'm not expert on, on any foreign uh financial exchanges right. but of course in the United States we we see restrictions like that sometimes in uh, 
bidding in in auctions run by the government, for example, where they say certain licenses, certain rights can only be won by firms that are, you know, by firms that are small or by firms that are owned by minorities or women or veterans. Mm. Uh, So one of the things you see, for instance, in spectrum auctions is that there are uh, some licenses set aside or some discounts given to firms in these special classes. And often what happens is some large firm becomes a 49% owner of a, a small firm that's, that's run by a, a, you know, someone in the privileged position. And that, the, that that gives everyone enough capital that the discounts are just bid away. The, the prices for the discounted spectrum licenses, for example, go for just as much money as the uh, undiscounted ones because behind the the privileged firm is a is a wealthy large firm of the kind you would expect to be bidding on spectrum so it's a little hard to to enforce some of these rules in a way that that gets at the intent right you, know, you can have silent partners right right but do, do you think that they're um, what, what do you think about that though do you, do you think that how does this impact these markets I guess that would be the question well so, so it's a tax on them I mean I think for instance Saudi Arabia is a place where I don't think foreigners can own uh, controlling shares of firms so every right. every domestic firm is is you know has Saudi ownership but that just means that if you were Ford Motor Company and you want to uh, you know sell Fords in Saudi Arabia you have to do business with some very well connected Saudi businessman, um, mm. it adds to your costs. And, and would this classify, in your opinion, as some form of, uh, especially if, like you said, like finding special purpose vehicles to be able to obtain a larger equity stake in a particular company, is is that some what of um, a classification of like a repugnant uh, transaction to some extent because you're you're going beyond um, you know what whatever's considered the legal jurisdiction to find some kind of loophole in the market to to obtain the exposure that you so desire well a repugnant transaction is a transaction that some people would like to engage in and okay. other people wouldn't like them to right so to the extent that some transactions are illegal uh, but people would like to engage in them, you might very well, uh, they might be repugnant in some places. So, for example, think of Uber in France right now. There are people who would like to drive cars for Uber, and there are people who would like to to, to use their app to, to call a ride when they need one. Mm-hmm. So, But on the other hand, it's against French law, and uh, the French have been quite vigorous in in cracking down on, on the equivalent of UberX in, in Paris. Mm-hmm. So I guess Uber, you know, Uber transactions are repugnant transactions in Paris right now. Uh, of course, there have been lots of repugnant transactions for, for centuries in the Middle Ages in Europe. It was the, the church didn't think you should be able to charge interest on loans. And of right. course... We'd hardly have the big capitalist markets that we have around the world if we didn't have markets for capital. So these can be very consequential. Mm-hmm. In, in the you know not all not all uh, repugnant transactions are financial. Uh, in the United States and in many places around the world, we've just seen a, a revolution in how we regard same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Right? A, a marriage is a transaction between people who want to be married to each other and in the case of same-sex marriage there were lots of people who thought that 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 was a repugnant transaction that they you know people who wanted to do it shouldn't be allowed to uh but in the united states in the last dozen years we went from from being a place where no states allowed same-sex marriage to to being a country where all 
American states allow same-sex marriage. So these things can change. Right, right. On that whole subject of repugnant transactions, for many times, for example, throughout Asia, what you could find, and I think you guys get a lot of commercials even in the U.S. about this, is um, the the ability, somewhat of an international arbitrage that exists between uh, Western um, individuals being able to date uh, people in developing countries. I I see that there's a a matchmaking component there as well. But I I understand, and many people throughout society, when you're walking in the streets, you can actually observe the, 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 the component of social inequality that has um, uh, you know, uh, led to or become the causality of this matchmaking, which some people could identify as being somewhat repugnant. Um, what, what are your thoughts from that? How does social inequality play um, a role in the matchmaking component and, and then its overall perception to uh, repugnance or, or non-repugnance to some people? Well- I think there's some repugnance that has to do with social inequality, not, by no means all of it. I don't think that was the issue in same-sex marriage, for example. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but, um, but of course, I've spent a lot of my time trying to organize ways to get more kidney transplants because around the world there's a shortage of, of transplantable kidneys. There's lots right. of kidney disease in the world and not many organs. And almost everywhere in the world it's illegal to buy and sell kidneys. That is... Mm. If, if, if in the course of this conversation we were to figure out that you needed a kidney and I was willing to sell you mine, uh, that would probably be illegal. It'd certainly be illegal where I'm standing in California, right. and I bet it's illegal where you are. Right. Um, just about the only place in the world where there's a legal monetary market for kidneys is in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh-huh. Uh, strange. But, uh, but I think you, the concerns you bring up, the idea that allowing such a monetary market might somehow disadvantage poor and vulnerable people, people who, who suffer from inequalities of various sorts. Right. Um, I think that's the, the motivation behind the, the very, very widespread laws against buying and selling kidneys. Now, you mentioned dating, but... Um, Fertility is an issue, a set of transactions that that the world varies widely, uh, around the world, it varies widely what's repugnant and what's not. Here in mm. California, where I am, you can purchase the whole supply chain of a baby. You could buy sperm and yeah. eggs, and mm. you could have them mm. artificially inseminated into a surrogate mom, and you could have your name on the California birth certificate as the father. Now... There are markets for that, somewhat in California, big ones in India and Nepal and Thailand right. Um, right. and elsewhere, no doubt. And there are places where it's illegal or legal, but you can't pay for it. So I think in Germany, it's simply illegal. In England, surrogacy is legal, but you can't pay for it. So we have fertility tours, uh, people who desperately want children and can't have them you know, some other way, mm-hmm. uh, moving around the world trying to have children. And of course legal problems can develop. I believe in Germany, if you have a surrogate baby in India, they won't let you repatriate him. You know, they say, who is this small person and, and how is he related to you? Right. And their feeling is you have to adopt this baby, which is complicated and hard. <laughs> but, in, but, you come, but if you come to California, you come back with your name on the American birth certificate. So um, that's something that varies widely by place. Things that are repugnant are by no means repugnant in this you know in the same way in different places or in different times a lot of repugnances change over time in you know like same-sex marriage like interest on loans like 
slavery and indentured servitude. You know, in right. the United States, we used to have markets for slaves, and the most common way to buy passage across the Atlantic Ocean was to sell yourself into a five-year contract of indentured servitude. But that's that's illegal now. Those aren't legal labor contracts. So. So, so while many things that used to be repugnant no longer are, there are things that weren't so repugnant that now are. Yeah, taking this, uh, it's ironic um, as as we're um, having this conversation, Al. Basically, the the signing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership has actually become official, and um, you know one of the big things in society right now is is the whole talk about the implications of globalization and and multinationals and the role that they're going to be playing with um, developing countries, and and then there's a component of like protectionism within. Um, the country itself and but then there's also a fascinating factor in regards to like free markets and and personally I'm, I'm a big fan of free markets and I, I think that they effectively work <laughs> in the long term um, despite what what people might hear throughout the media um, but basically I, I think that when I hear these conversations especially in America about like protectionism uh, concerns about multinationals and and globalization I think that when I look at a country like America especially using free markets as a tool you know there's been many industries especially in California and the area you're at in terms of biotechnology Silicon Valley where um, you know uh, the United States has become a massive exporter of intellectual property um, whereas importing like you know physical commodities uh, has caused an overall trade deficit for uh, the country as a whole, but in terms of the benefits for the public companies that are acting like multinationals and are the benefactors of all of this IP, um, you know, you, you see that that inverse. So, so it's 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 a very interesting that all the things that you've actually um, discussed about have some massive implications besides just using examples of like. A dwarf tossing and, and kidneys, which are also very relevant as well throughout the world. But but I'm also thinking about this in a whole global context when I'm opening up, like, you know, reading The Economist or whatever, um, because I, I have to have like a, a global macro perspective. So so I, I just wanted, first and foremost, I wanted to demonstrate to you is that I did do a lot of my homework in terms of this conversation. <laughs> but but I, I really am thinking about all the things that you've discussed about very profoundly. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I, I agree that the question of repugnance touches on what kinds of transactions societies support. Right. And markets are very social institutions that require some social support. So the reason I, I focus on some of these outre examples is to <laughs> make, it clear, make it clear that it's not just self-interest. It's not just that we might not like free trade because we're worried about our steel industry and we'd like high tariffs to protect our steel workers. You know, it's not only right. economic interest that makes people not like things. There's this idea that somehow, one of the things that goes on is that somehow markets are are anonymous, like commodity markets. Mm-hmm. They're not matching markets, that you don't know who you're dealing with, and that that, that sucks some of the meaning out of, of certain kinds of transactions. And I think some of the opposition to kidney sales has to do with things like that. Some of the opposition to, um, you know, surrogate births. Uh, incidentally, there was opposition to artificial insemination in the 1970s when those techniques were first developed. So, 
there there are ways to look at the world and say, gee, it's you know we used to know everyone we dealt with and and have a world full of relationships, and now as markets become more pervasive, we we have fewer relationships than than we might like or than we used to, and there's something to think about there. Yeah, it's it's uh, as you know, um, um, economics can have many different schools of thought and. And in, you know, without diving into any particular paradigms, I, I, I guess when you're putting this together, you're trying to be as as objective as possible. Um, I, I think about everything that you tell me about when, in terms of like the the fall of the Soviet Union, and from what I heard through anecdotal evidence, is as soon as uh, that has happened. Um, you started immediately seeing people on the streets uh, participating in trade and commerce of basically contraband, which in theory could be repugnant items such as like cigarettes and stuff like that. But it, it was used as, as, as almost like a form which then led to like the opening up of markets. Um, th- so that's, well, The thing, the yeah, thing about on. repugnant transactions is they're transactions they're not really transactions that some people don't want to happen. They're transactions that some people do want to happen. Yes. And so it's very, very hard to suppress markets. There are black markets and kidneys. You can't yes. legally buy my kidney. But if you wanted, you could find a kidney to buy. We, Of course, we've been fighting you know, worldwide a long war on narcotic drugs. Yes. But it's very hard to fight, right? We, we're, it's not at all obvious that we're, we're winning it. In the United States, we had prohibition. For, for a little while, we said, you know, we won't sell alcohol. Well, that right. didn't work very well. <laughs> uh, and and similarly, you know, surrogacy and all these things, you know, the or, you know, there were places where uh, birth control was illegal. You know, I think for a while in Ireland, you weren't supposed to be able to buy contraceptives. Right. Uh, needless to say, these are these are things that people would like to buy, and it's hard to stop them from being available. So, in this instance, um, Alice, what would you, as as a almost like a fan of market design? How? What is considered almost like a, a utopian approach to addressing, like you know, things that are perceived as repugnant or or being concerned about various different national interests? How do you build markets and systems that would be receptive to this? As you indicated, right? When I look at Amsterdam and prostitution legalization and marijuana legalization, when you look at lower tariffs in particular uh, financial hubs around the world. What is the the rational response to this in terms of uh, the development of, of marketplaces and market design? Well, I, th- I think there are different obstacles that have to be treated differently. When you think about free trade agreements, um, there are winners and losers, right? If uh, yeah. the if if we are going to import cheaper steel from from you know from electric arc steel mills located in in ocean ports instead of from steel mills in the Ohio River Valley, um, it's going to be good for most Americans. We're going to get cheaper steel, cheaper buildings, cheaper cars, but it's not going to be good for people who work on steel mills that are becoming obsolete. So as a country, it's our obligation if we want to um, support free trade to also think of ways to to ease the bump that's going to come to the people who will be displaced. That's an internal matter, but it's one that, that we can't just say too bad for them. It's one thing you know, it's one thing if you're a, a high school student who was thinking of going into a, an Ohio River steel mill, and now you'll do something else. But if you're a 55-year-old steel worker, it's bad news when the mill closes. So we should be thinking how to how to 
uh, take care of the people who don't benefit from particular aspects of trade. Uh, that would make it easier to, to spread the benefits. On the other hand, when you think of uh, you know some other things like whether 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 it might be okay to buy and sell kidneys, mm -hmm. uh, that's a much more complicated question. The the interests there tend to to not be about particular people who who are opposed, but rather about protecting people who might participate in the market. Right. And when we look at when we look at these markets, I think again you have to think about the question of social support. You mentioned prostitution in Amsterdam. Right. Uh, it's legal in Amsterdam, but my mm -hmm. guess is that that people aren't proud of of being sex workers. That is, when someone runs for for the Dutch Parliament, they don't they don't as part of their campaign say you should vote for me because when I was young I was a sex worker. <laughs> um, but 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 for instance, we had a similar debate to this when I was young in the United States about whether we should go from an army that that drew its soldiers by conscription to one that is is a volunteer army, which mm -hmm. we ultimately did. There was a lot of concern about would would that turn our army into a, a mercenary army and soldiers wouldn't get respect and maybe they wouldn't behave appropriately for for an army of a democracy and things like that and i think to a great extent those fears uh have not been borne out when someone runs for the senate in the united states mm -hmm. a big part of his campaign is you should vote for me because when i was young i was a marine right i i served my country right? mm -hmm. you, you, we we pay marines but but it's a very honorable thing to do we when we uh board crowded airplanes uh, serving soldiers are invited to, to board first. So, for instance, I would be very happy to board behind kidney donors, yeah. even, if, even if they'd so sold their kidney. So, there is a, a market for kidneys in Iran, but apparently the sellers in it prefer to remain anonymous. So, it's more like being a sex worker than like being a Marine. And that suggests to me there's something wrong in that market, although I don't know the details. It's it's interesting about Iran though is that it is um, they do have um, uh, equities market there and and it's very protectionist actually and and I actually try to look for ways to 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 get some exposure to that uh, fantastic demographic so it's it's quite tricky as well when when thinking about this I, I'm often very frustrated that many of these countries. Um, make it very difficult to invest, but then one has to think about very unique and innovative ways to do so. And, and like you said, it's, it's like, you know, um, sometimes you're, you're, that's, I guess that's the amazing thing about markets is that you're always looking for other alternative solutions or ways to go, get through um, any kind of hurdles that you have or how to address those, those things as well. What, what, listening to you discuss about um, markets and, and indicating, for example, about the steel workers in their 50s and you're talking about various different social obligations, I, I guess intuitively if anyone's listening to that, it, it sounds great. But the question then remains is the manner in which that's done. And I, 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 guess, I guess here's the thing. Do you think the, the role of the state, Al, is to think about these aspects um, from, from the perspective of, of, of markets as well? Or should, should the state play somewhat of a, a different role? I don't know if these are too big of questions to be asking you about that stuff. But, but I mean, because I know you study markets and you think about that. I mean, um, some governments think uh, much more commercially, for example. And I, I don't know what your perspectives are on that in general. Well, 
so so let's go back to you used the phrase a free market and said you were in favor of them and that that's a, a phrase I talk about a bit in the book because yes, as a do. market as a market designer I think about the rules by which markets work right and I think and what makes a market a free market is a market that has rules that allow competition to work freely allow mm -hmm. it to work freely mm -hmm. so the the metaphor I like to use is when you think of a wheel that can rotate freely it's not rotating in a vacuum it's it's got an axle and bearings yep. and the bearings have to be finely machined and well oiled in order for the wheel to rotate freely and that's a little bit about about markets whether or not you're using the word design as a, a verb or as a noun markets have designs and the 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 rule-based part of markets are the marketplaces which have rules that determine you know the new york stock exchange at what time it opens at what time it closes what kind of information has to be revealed before securities can be traded um, there are lots of rules that that over time are, are incrementally added to try to make the market work better. So when we think about international trade, one of the things we have to think about is how to gather support for it in a democracy. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways you can gather support from it is by having governments, you know, we're talking about big macro effects, but, but they, they help many people but harm some people. One way to gather political support is to have mechanisms in place for taking care of those who are harmed, mm -hmm. which by and large, we think we can afford to do because of the benefits to those who are helped. So that's part of the role of government, I think, because when I buy a car more cheaply or, or a building more cheaply or a steel saucepan more cheaply, I don't have any easy way of helping to ease the, the blow to, to steel workers who were put out of jobs by the, the fact that I can get this steel more cheaply over the ocean than, than over railroads now from, from the middle of the country. But we ought to think about that because if we don't think about that, we'll have trouble ratifying trade agreements, which are right. probably good. But Al, in that instance, do you think that um, as individuals that we must be ever so sensitive to the indications that markets are giving to us. Because I could sit here and argue that for that individual that's even in their 50s, unfortunately in this instance, that they needed to be thinking, taking somewhat of a temperature in the steel um, job market, you know, uh, periodically to be able to understand that, okay, there are some major macro shifts that are happening within my, my industry. Perhaps I need to think about the development of some other skill sets or some new markets to, to be participating in to some extent. Well, that, that is what steel workers who might face unemployment in case of a global trade deal could think but they could also think maybe i should be contributing to the political campaign of someone who opposes this free trade deal <laughs> right and and so part of making things work well is to alter the incentive so that that we can all cooperate with each other instead of competing in a destructive way so right so if yeah. if there's a soft landing you know if a lot of the things we do is we phase things in Right? Okay. We sort of say there's going to be a change, but it won't be tomorrow. It'll happen over the next five years or the next ten years, and that allows um, that allows people who who might be hurt by an abrupt change to be hurt less. You know, one of the examples I give is I used to drive an old car that uh, used leaded gasoline, and at some point, as an environmental regulation, we decided that we didn't want new cars to use leaded gasoline anymore because they they uh, 
they expel lead into into the atmosphere you know, mm -hmm. through their exhaust. But there was a long time where I still drove the the old car that I had that that used leaded gasoline, and gradually leaded gasoline became less and less available. And my old car got older and older. And when I bought a new car, it used unleaded gasoline. And today, leaded gasoline is no longer available. Mm -hmm. But it didn't become unavailable from one day to the next, which would have forced me to buy a new car immediately. Right? That would have that would have been a uh, you know I was young then and not uh, not prosperous yet, mm -hmm. and uh, that would have been a big. Uh, a big blow to have to buy a new car from from one day to the next, and of course, if that were going to be the change, that legislation never would have passed, right? Because right. it would have harmed too many people. So phasing it in and saying if you've got a car that uses leaded gasoline, you can continue to drive it, was a much better way to get rid of the leaded gasoline, which we have successfully done in the United States, than to say it's bad stuff. You have to stop tomorrow. Right. So, so what what kind of um, takeaway would you like a, a particular reader of, of your book or anyone that's listening to, to this uh, podcast, for example, to take away from, from this, this conversation that we're having? Um, and, and what I mean by that is that clearly um, economic paradigms and ideologies affect people in, in their day-to-day -day lives. I, I believe that in addition to like, you know, um, faith or whatever that they have, it also plays a big role. And, and you, you can see it in the day-to-day -day interactions of um, people. I'm a big believer in, in the, from the perspective of, of value creation, right? If, if I can offer someone something of value, typically uh, there's some component of that that's uh, either reciprocated uh, directly or indirectly to, to myself um, in some shape or form. And, and it, it seems to work overall, whereas there's um, some components that I would argue that are value destructive, for example. And I, I guess through through understanding all, all your, your whole perspectives on markets and exchange, for example, what, what could one take away from all of this in, in order to, to be that much more astute and, and you know, successful in life? Well, I, I guess what you could take away from, from my book is that markets are ancient human artifacts. Mm -hmm. They're ubiquitous. There are lots of different kinds of markets, many that that aren't obviously markets the way commodity markets are, where price does all the work. Many markets involve relationships. Many markets, many markets are matching markets where, where you can't just choose what you want, even if you can afford it, because you also have to be chosen. Like labor markets, for instance, you can't just go work for Google. You have to be hired. They can't just hire you. They have to entice you and compete with, with Facebook. Um, so I think there are markets all around. They, some of the unconventional markets, some of the markets in which price doesn't determine everything are some of the most important markets in our lives. And markets have a designs. They have rules. And figuring out how the rules work in the market can help you navigate it better at some of, again, all the time and also at some of your life's most important junctions. Well, thank you very much. I mean, this has been a, a very fascinating conversation, and, and thank you for speaking to to us in, in layman terms. Uh, a lot of the ideas that you have as well, that's that's much much appreciated, Al. Well, it, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and it was fun to write the book for that reason. That it, it's fun to try to talk to a, uh, an audience of non-specialists about about markets, which are such an important part of our lives. 
We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.